Well, let me invite you to turn in your Bibles to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 24, and we continue our study of this Gospel. We're getting close to the end, as you know. Um, We're on page 885 in the Pew Bible, if you want to follow along there. We're delighted to consider this wonderful story. Uh, This morning, we're actually going to be working through a number of verses, and as I often encourage you, I would encourage you to have a copy of God's Word open I think you'll find it, your ability to engage in God's Word a lot easier as we follow along just verse by verse through this wonderful, incredible, and encouraging uh, resurrection event as we see here in Luke 24. So Luke 24, beginning in verse 13, hear now the Word of God. That very day, two of them were going to a village named Emmaus about seven miles from Jerusalem. And they were talking with each other about all these things that had happened. While they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them. But their eyes were kept from recognizing him. And he said to them, What is this conversation that you are holding with each other as you walk? And they stood still, looking sad. Then one of them, named Cleopas, answered him, Are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know these things that have happened there in these days? And he said to them, What things? And they said to him, Concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet, mighty in deed and word before God and all the people, and now our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death. And crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all this, it is now the third day since these things happened. Moreover, some women of our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning. And when they did not find his body, they came back saying that they had even seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the woman had said. But him they did not see. And he said to them, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, He interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. So they drew near to the village to which they were going. He acted as if he were going farther, but they urged him strongly, saying, Stay with us, for it is towards evening, and the day is now far spent. So he went in to stay with them. When he was at table with them, he took the bread and blessed and broke it and gave it to them. And their eyes were opened, and they recognized him, and he vanished from their sight. They said to each other, Did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road, while he opened to us the scriptures? And they arose that same hour and returned to Jerusalem, and they found the eleven, and those who were with them gathered together, saying, The Lord has risen indeed, and has appeared to Simon. Then they told what, the, what had happened on the road and how he was known to them in the breaking of the bread. Our Father, we're thankful for your word here in which we can consider this morning truly a wonderful and incredible story worthy of our celebration and attention. And so we do pray, Father, that you would give us eyes to see it and that you, like uh, these two disciples, you would remove the scales from our eyes that we might delight in the glory of the Lord and what he has done we might encounter Jesus through his word today, that we might be more like him, fall more in love with him, obey him more passionately, and submit to him more joyfully. And we do it all for his sake and for our gain, for we ask it in Christ's name. Amen. It was in the early 1700s that John Wesley returned from the colony of Georgia to England after a failed preaching tour for about two years. And on his voyage back to England, 
there arose a mighty and terrible storm. In fact, it was so, so bad that Wesley and most of the people on board were terrified, all except for a group of German Christians, Moravians, who showed no fear. Wesley's biographer writes, the lively faith of the Moravians he admired, which in the midst of danger kept their minds in a state of tranquility to which he and the English on board were strangers. While Moravian singing, sea broke over the ship, splitting the mast in pieces, the water pouring down between the decks as if the great deep would swallow them up. The English were greatly terrified and screamed for, from fear, while the Moravians were unmoved and calmly sang on. Wesley would later ask them after the storm had passed, weren't you afraid to die? One of the German Christians said to him, I thank God, no. Wesley persisted and said, well, what about your women and children? Aren't they afraid to die? He said, no, our women and children are not afraid to die. And Wesley was so moved by his encounter with them that once he arrived in England, he attended a Moravian prayer meeting in London. They happened to be studying the book of Romans there, which God teaches that he, he saves us through faith alone. And Wesley would later write of that prayer meeting these words, I felt my heart strangely warmed. I felt I did trust in Christ, Christ alone for salvation, and an assurance was given to me that he had taken away my sins, even mine. Have you ever felt a strange warmth in your heart? You relate to what Wesley is saying here. Have you ever felt a stirring in your chest as you've considered God's word and what he has done? You see, it's not Wesley's experience alone. The disciples traveling on the road to Emmaus, in fact, they felt something similar, but far more than warmth. He said, I don't know if you noted in verse 32, they said to each other, did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road, while he opened to us the scriptures? They were on fire, weren't they? This uh, is the second of the three Easter encounters in Luke's gospel. We're still on Easter Sunday. I hope, I hope it's okay if you get another Easter message today. Um, you, you notice verse 13 says that very day, uh, two of them were going to a village named Emmaus. So the very day that the women found the empty tomb, the very day that the angels declared to them that he is risen. And, and, and so we find ourselves in the second of these three stories, Easter stories. And by the way, if you were here last week, we were given out this little pamphlet by Sir Norman Anderson, a professor of Oriental Law at London University, called The Evidence of the Resurrection. We have a, maybe a couple dozen left. Those would be wonderful to hand out to people who may be searching for truth or may not not sure about the resurrection. And so I'd encourage you to grab those. I think we have ushers who will be handing those out at the end of the service. But anyways, this is the, the second of these three Easter events. And by the way, in Luke's gospel, they all follow the same pattern. They all begin with this disbelief or, or grief. Then there's a rebuke followed by a teaching of God's word, which results in this joyful witness. And so uh, we, we, we saw this with the, with the women. We'll see this today, and we'll see it, God willing, next time, that these men, in fact, they begin walking one direction full of despair, and they end, the end of the story, they have them running the opposite direction full of wonder and joy. So what's happened? Well, their spiritual blindness was taken away, and they were given the sight of the Lord, which led to this transformation. So we consider the story, those would just be kind of the three scenes I want us to go through. Spiritual blindness leading to spiritual sight, which leads to spiritual transformation. As you see, scene one, we see that they are full of blindness, full of grief, as we begin the story, verse 13. That very day, two of them were going to a village named Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem, and as they were talking, and and they were talking with each other about all these things that had happened. So you got two men; they're leaving Jerusalem. They're most likely going home to this village called Emmaus. 
as Luke tells us, about seven miles away. And so you might think this would be a three-hour walk, maybe a four-hour walk if they were taking their time. And as they walked, they're, they're in the middle of a very emotional conversation. Luke says they are discussing all the things that had happened over these past couple days. So you can imagine they're talking about the betrayal of the apostles, um, of course, the trial of the Lord Jesus, his crucifixion. And, and, and then now, on, on this Sunday, three days after he's crucified, these women are testifying that the tomb is empty, and they've even seen angels, right? And so they're very confused as to all what's going on. They, they must think, what, what is happening as they talk about these things? We know one of these guys' names is Cleopas. Uh, he's mentioned, I think, in verse 18. Now, only Luke will record this story, and he names Cleopas because most likely he interviewed Cleopas for this, for this event. We're not sure who this man is, but he might be the same Cleopas we find in John 19. And so if that's the case, if it's the same guy, well, church tradition tells us that that Cleopas in John 19 was uh, Jesus' uncle. It would be Joseph's brother. And so uh, we're not sure who it is, but here they are. They're, we're, they're identified as disciples of the Lord Jesus, at least former disciples of the Lord Jesus, because they now consider him dead. That's why they're on this slow, lamenting walk home. And as they are full of grief and talk about these things, you notice this stranger walks up behind him, according to verse 15. While they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them. You just get this picture of just Jesus kind of catching up with them and walking along as they continue to talk. I, I mentioned that he's a stranger because they don't recognize him, as you see in verse 16. But their eyes were kept from recognizing him. That happens a lot with the resurrection accounts of Jesus. Right? They're, they're initially not sure who this is. It tells us that, that though he looks the same, there's something very different about him, isn't there? So there's similarity and there's difference. We're going to explore more of that, God willing, next week. But I think actually something more is happening here. You notice they were kept from recognizing him. Something's happening to them. And I, I, I'm going to argue that this is God's work, that God is keeping them from understanding that this is Jesus for a very important reason we'll explore in a little bit. And so here you have Jesus, this stranger, catch up with them. And you can imagine, he says, you, know, you guys, you mind if I walk with you? Mind if I spend some time? And, and then he listens to these uh, uh, disciples mourn Jesus' death and, and express their confusion over all that he claimed. And he said he's going to do this, and he said he was this, but, but now he's dead. And, and you know, I can't believe he's, he died. I can't believe they crucified him. How could this happen, they might have said. What about all his promises? Wouldn't it be great if he's still alive, they, they might have mentioned, as Jesus listens to them and walks with them. And finally, Jesus asked this question, you know, what, what are you guys talking about in verse 17? And he said to them, what is this conversation you're holding with each other as you walk? Such a question stops them in their tracks, in despair. You see, Luke records in verse 17, and they stood still, looking sad. And maybe your translation says, downcast, staring at the ground with despair in their heart. And finally, they look up, and before they answer his question, they have a question for this stranger recorded in verse 18. Then one of them named Cleopas answered him, Are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know these things that have happened there in these days? Right? Do you really don't know what's going on? Right? Are you, are, are you the only one who hasn't heard about all these events? Evidently, this is all over Jerusalem. Like In Jerusalem at this time, everyone is talking about this. Right? No, no one understands it, clearly, but they're all talking about it. Everyone's aware of it. Everyone except this stranger. And so they look at the resurrected Lord and they say, Man, where have you been? And you, you kind of hope Jesus says, Well, I've, you know, I've been busy. Right? You know? Uh, I've, I've been away. You know, and they might have asked, hey, don't you ever get out? And you kind of wish Jesus says, well, yeah, I got out this morning. In, fa in fact, I left the door wide open, right? Um, but instead, Jesus is showing us, I think, good evangelism. He, he asked them a question, right? He, 
He prods them. He wants to get them to talk. You see that in verse 19? And he said to them, what things? Tell me what you believe. Tell me what's going on in your heart. Tell me what you're thinking about. Get them to begin to verbalize it. Often when people don't even know what they're thinking until they actually begin to share it with you. And so Jesus asked them for clarifying questions. I just think this is amazing. I don't know if you get to appreciate the humor that's going on here because Jesus is standing there. And I, I think he must have a little grin upon his face, don't you? Playing along, what are you talking about? I mean, I don't know if he has his name or hand over his name tag, you know, Jesus of Nazareth, right? And he's just going, who, who's this Jesus of Nazareth? Tell me more. And they do. They both begin to speak at once. They're talking over each other in one of the longest speeches in Luke's gospel by anyone other than Jesus, as you see in verse 19. And they said to him, Concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet mighty indeed and word before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all this, it is now the third day since these things happened. Moreover, some of our women, uh, some, of, some women of our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning, and when they did not find his body, they came back saying, that they had even seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. And some of those who were with us went to the tomb and they found it just as the woman had said. But him they did not see. I don't don't know if you noticed, but that's pretty much the entire gospel. Right? He starts with Jesus' life. He was a prophet. He's mighty. He did all sorts of miracles, a righteous man. Then he goes to his tragic death, verses 20, verse 21. He was crucified, they said. Then he begins to talk about, okay, now we're at the third day. And in verse 22 and verse 23, the women come to an empty tomb. The angels declare that he is risen. But obviously, you can't trust women, right? I mean, they're very emotional and get carried away. So us men folk went and and explored it, right? Verse 24, and we found the tomb empty, too. Just as they had said. It's like the gospel. It's the death, burial, or resurrection of Jesus. It's, it's missing something, isn't it? Because all the facts are there, but there's, there's no faith. There's no joy. Just sadness and despair. These men simply discard the woman's story. They disregard the empty tomb discovered or rediscovered by the apostles. It's not proof that he's risen to them. It's just more occasions for grief because he's dead in their minds. In verse 19, I don't know if you caught it, Jesus was a man who was a prophet. Was. Past tense. He's dead now. And so the good news of the empty tomb was just more bad news. I don't know if you caught the end of their little speech and the great irony there in verse 24. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said. But him they did not see. They say, looking into the face of Jesus. I can't find him. They say, to Christ. And I wonder if there's a spiritual lesson there, my friends, that Jesus can be in your life right now and you can fail to see him. maybe, Maybe you've come to a point now or maybe you will in the days to come where you you, you wonder, where is God in the midst of sadness and grief and turmoil and trouble and trial? Well, it might just be he's right there with you. Right? They, they, they are experiencing this spiritual blindness. Jesus is with them, and they don't see him, and therefore they are filled with despair because they just think he's dead. There is no resurrection in their mind. And I'm telling you, if there is no resurrection, if death is the end, If death is the end of Jesus, and death is the end of us, and death is the end of of them, if there is no eternity, if there is no eternal life, I would suggest to you that any thinking person will join these pilgrims in a life of despair. I don't know how you could have any hope. I don't know how you can live, to be perfectly honest. I know people do, but I don't understand how you can live without the hope of eternal life. The last month I was... Uh, listening to uh, NPR, and there was a, a little segment. I don't know if you listen to NPR, but they have a little segment called Stardate. And they, t- they spend about two minutes telling you what the stars are doing on this particular day, what the moon is doing or whatnot. And I, I was driving into work, uh, and, and I was listening to Stardate. It was on March 16th, uh, last month. And I almost pulled over the car in astonishment as to what they said. In fact, I got in the office, and I went online. I just pulled down this script. Let me share it with a little NPR this morning, Okay. Uh, The future of the universe looks dark. 
The stars will fade away, matter may disintegrate, and even black holes may vanish. That will leave a cold, dark void containing only the most basic bits of matter and energy. As spaces stretch, clusters of galaxies will be so far apart that they will be isolated from each other. So the inhabitants of a cluster look towards intergalactic space. They won't see any galaxies. And as time passes, there won't be much to see in their own cluster either. After that, all the stars will burn out, and the galaxies will be populated only by stellar corpses, white dwarfs, neutron stars, and black holes. One of the most basic building blocks of atoms, the proton, eventually may decay. If so, then all atoms in the universe will fall apart. After that, only cold and darkness, a dead universe that expands forever. This is Stardate, March 16th, 2018. Right, that's the hope. Cold and dead, right? A, a dead universe that just expands forever and ever. If there is no resurrection, that's the end of the universe. That's the end of us. Listen, if the origin of human life is chance and insignificance, and the end of human life is we rot in the ground, and then we say, but in the meantime, let's treat each other as if we're valuable, right? Let, let's help the hurting. Let's fight injustice. Don't you see that senseless? That if reality is random and meaningless, then why is racism wrong? Why is hurting people wrong? Why is there anything called wrong or right? If the beginning is insignificant and the end is insignificant, then let's at least have the guts to say all of life is insignificant. Right? That, that's the only option. You have two options. You could have either a resurrection, eternal life, living with God, or, or you can say that nothing matters. There is nothing in between. And these men, I think, are right to be filled with despair. If there is no resurrection, if Jesus is dead and we all die and we all just rot in the ground, what hope is there? But my friends, I'm telling you, Jesus is alive. He has risen from the dead, and he will not leave them in their state of blindness, in their state of despair, for he will come and give them spiritual sight, but only after he rebukes them, as you see in verse 25. Consider scene number two, spiritual sight. The Lord says, O foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets had spoken. Now, he rebukes them, doesn't he? He rebukes them for their disbelief. But you notice their disbelief in what? Why, why is he rebuking them? Why is he calling them foolish? Because they don't believe that the empty tomb testifies to his resurrection? They don't believe the testimony of the women or, or, or the angel's declaration? No, that's not why he rebukes them. You see what he rebukes them? He rebukes them for their failure to believe the Bible. Their failure to believe Scripture he says, you're slow of heart to believe what? The women? No. To slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. You're slow of heart to believe the scripture. Which, by the way, exactly what the angel said to the women, right? Remember he said, didn't he tell you that he was going to rise? You should have paid more attention to what he said, right? Remember his word. And so Jesus says, you men are foolish and thick-headed. You should have expected this. You should have expected that suffering will precede glory. You should have expected that something like the crucifixion would come before the resurrection. In fact, it was necessary, as we see in verse 26. Was it not necessary that Christ should suffer these things? And the NIV has the word, then enter into his glory. Right? Suffering comes before glory. Jesus has told us, has shown us, and has pointed that all of Scripture points to that truth. The, therefore, the cross is not the end. Death is not the end. It's just a doorway to eternal glory. We'll all suffer just as Christ has on our way to glory. In fact, Jesus says it's necessary. This was necessary that he suffer. Why was it necessary? Because it's necessary for our sins to be paid for. It's necessary for, for us to take all our iniquity and put it upon our substitute, the Lord Jesus Christ, who died 
under the wrath of God to bear our sin. It's necessary for your salvation, my brothers and sisters in Christ, that he take this upon himself, that he suffer before he is glorified. And, and not, only, not only do we see this in the Gospels, but Jesus has Scripture testified to this. All the prophets speak to this, and so he goes on to teach them in verse 27. And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Now, could you imagine, any of you who likes the Bible, which I hope is pretty much all of us, could you imagine the living word of God explaining the written word of God from Moses through the prophets all the scripture he says, and what does he teach them? It's all about me. You see that in verse 27. That he taught them, interpreted to them in all the scriptures, what? The things concerning themselves. The scriptures are about Jesus. All of them. From the book of Genesis to the book of Revelation, it's all about Jesus. In fact, Jesus already said as much. He told the Pharisees, you search the scriptures because you think in them you have eternal life, and it is they that bear witness about Me. Jesus is the key that unlocks the scripture. My friends, you'll never understand the Bible until you understand it is about the Lord. Now, I know I share this with you every once in a while, but you'll have to forgive me. I'm going to do it again. And trust me, I will do it again and again and again. But there are two ways to read the Bible. Many people, they, they come to the Bible one way. You come to the Bible like it's a topical book to give you principles on life. So you open the Bible and say, okay, I want to learn how to treat my wife or I want to learn how to, how to deal with my finances or I'm going to read the Bible to find out how to overcome temptation or how I could grow in boldness or how I could become more patient. So we come to the Bible and we say, show me how to live. Show me what to do. And of course, the Bible gives us principles on life. There is no doubt. But may I suggest to you this morning, that is not primarily what the Bible is for. That the Bible is not primarily about you. The Bible is not primarily about what you are supposed to do. The Bible is primarily about who? It's about our Lord. The Bible is about God. The Bible is about who he is and what he has done. And so you come to Scripture, and you come saying, Lord, show me who you are. Show me what you have done. And only once you begin to see who he is and what he has done for you, that you will begin to discover the power coming from within you to live the life in which he has called you to live. Sometimes we call that gospel-centered living. It starts in the gospel. If you, in other words, if you simply see the demands of Scripture and you have not first delighted in who God is and what he has done, you will find God's demands burdensome. But when you see what he has done, your heart begins to be drawn to him. Your, your heart gets a little bit on fire, as we see in these Emmaus disciples. You love him, and all of a sudden you're happy to do the will of your beloved. So let, let me, let me I, I, again, I know I've, I've shared this before, but... Take, for example, the, the story of Joseph, all right? And so if, if you read the story of Joseph, like, okay, Joseph is a little story to tell me how to live, right? Joseph, remember, sold by his evil brothers, thrown into a pit, expected to die, rises to become prime minister of Egypt, and then his brothers come begging for their life to him, and what does he do? He saves them and he forgives them. So one way to read the Bible is, okay, show me what to do. I read the story of Joseph. Okay, I'm going to be like Joseph, right? Others stab me in the back. Others ruin my reputation. Others hurt me deeply. And I'm supposed to love them and forgive them and do whatever I can to help them in life, right? That's the moral of Joseph. Now, I don't know if you find that inspiring. I find that crushing. I don't know how to do that. But what if I'm not Joseph in this story? What if... Jesus is Joseph, who who was betrayed by his brothers and put in a hole and reckoned for dead and emerges to the right hand of power in order to save our lives and to forgive the very ones who have betrayed him, namely you. So you're not Joseph, you're the brother in the story. And the degree in which you see that Jesus has done this for you, it humbles you and fills you with joy, right? And and all of a sudden, you find power. Okay, Jesus did that for me. I could go do that for others. 
What about Esther, who's in the palace, is she not? And, and the people are about to be destroyed, but she has to, what, risk her life in order to identify with her people in order to save her people. Now, if you read it, where's the moral? Be like Esther. It doesn't matter what the cost. Be courageous. You know, risk your life, risk your money, risk your job, speak up for truth, right? You find, I, don't, I don't find that inspiring at all. I find that very difficult to do. Okay, I don't care about anything. I'm just going to put it all on the line. But what if Esther points us to Jesus, who was in the real palace, who, who, who not only risked everything, but gave up everything in order to identify himself with his people and, and therefore saved us by doing so. And all of a sudden, I, I see Christ has done this for me, and I have this incredible security in Jesus, right? And, and, my, and my identity no, is no longer in my achievements and my, and my job and my money. It's in Christ, and therefore I can risk everything because of what Christ has done for me. I could be courageous like Jesus, See, don't, don't read the Bible and begin and think, okay, what am I supposed to do? Read the Bible and say, where are you, Lord? He's the hero. He's always the hero. And as we rejoice in what Jesus has done for us, we feel empowered. And what happens is the commands no longer come from outside and then lead to obedience, right? God's tried that. Commands from the outside, now go do it. I don't know if you remember, that didn't work out so well. But now what happens is that I'm drawn to God through his word. His, um, he captures my heart. And then my obedience simply becomes an expression of, of my love to him. See, Christianity is not an outside-in faith. It's an inside-out faith. We believe and remember and rejoice, and then we obey. And so when you open the Bible, certainly in the New Testament, but I'm telling you, Jesus shows us all of the Old Testament. It all points to Jesus. You can find him on every page. And so what does he start with? Moses. The book of Genesis. Maybe he starts in Genesis 1. He says, remember when the world was full of darkness and God said, let there be light? Well, that just pointed to me. I'm the light in the darkness. Maybe he got to Genesis 2 and he said, remember the, the man Adam who represented all humanity, who failed in temptation and imputed us his unrighteousness? Well, I'm the real Adam who passed temptation and imputes to you my righteousness. Maybe he got to Genesis 3 and said, remember the, the seed of the woman who will be bitten by the serpent but will crush its head? That pointed to me. Maybe he got to Genesis 4 and said, remember when Abel, the innocent man, was slain by the wicked and his blood called out for condemnation? But you don't see that points to me that I too have been innocently slain and yet my blood doesn't call for your condemnation but for your acquittal. Maybe he got to Genesis 5 and said, you remember when Enoch walked with God and was not? That just points to me. I'm the man who walks with God and is taken into heaven. Maybe he got to Genesis 6 and said, do you remember the ark in which Noah built by which we had to find refuge in in order to pass through the storm of God's wrath? That just points to me. I'm the ark in which you find refuge in in order that you might survive God's wrath. Maybe he got to Abraham and said, remember how Abraham obeyed God to go into a foreign land to create a new people? Well, I'm the better Abraham. That just pointed to me. Or maybe he got to Isaac, the son of promise who carried the wood of his own sacrifice up onto the mountain of Moriah. That just pointed to me. Maybe he got to Jacob and said, do you remember that man who started a new nation? That was about me. And my friends, that's just Genesis. Right? You get to Exodus, Passover lamb, shed blood delivers God's people from God's judgment. That's about me. I'm the better Moses, Jesus must have said, who defeats God's enemies and liberates the slaves, leading them safely from their bondage to the promised land. Maybe you said, don't you understand I'm the rock that was struck in the desert that gives the life-giving water. I'm the manna from heaven by which you find sustenance. I am the Sabbath rest by which you rest from all your labors. It all points to me. Maybe you got to Leviticus and said, don't you see I'm the tabernacle of God that I live in your presence or I'm the veil in which you have access to God or I'm the holy of holies for in me the fullness of God dwells. I'm the goat of atonement by which your sins are covered, or I'm the scapegoat by which your sins are carried away. Maybe you got to numbers and said, don't you see, I'm the bronze serpent lifted high that all who would look upon it might be saved. Maybe you got to Deuteronomy and said, don't you know I'm the one who takes the covenant curses upon myself that you might receive the covenant blessings. Maybe you got to Joshua and said, I'm the champion who trusts in God and brings you into the land of promise. Maybe you got to judges and said, don't you see, Sam he pointed to me. I'm the one who gives up my own life to, to slay the enemies and deliver God's people. Maybe he got to the book of Ruth, right? This woman 
who's of a foreign race, hopeless, impoverished, homeless, not a virgin, coming with a mother-in-law whose name is Bitter. And here comes this man, a landowner, wealthy, loves her, marries her, redeems her, and puts her in the family of royalty. Don't you think Jesus said, that's about me. That's what I do. Or he got to Samuel. You get an unlikely king, a boy who everybody passed over from a little rural village and a rises up to be king, but before he becomes king, you know what he does? He goes out and defeats the unconquerable enemy in which everyone else is helpless. And he does so in the most unlikely of ways, simply by trusting in God. And after doing so, the rest of God's people are able to rejoice in the spoils of that victory. It's about Jesus. And we got to Nehemiah, said, I'm the one who rebuilds the city of God so God's people can have a home. Don't you know I'm going to build for you a home? Maybe you got to Job and said, I'm the righteous one who suffers at the hands of the devil, whose friends are no help, and yet I remain faithful to God throughout it all, and in the end, God vindicates me. He got to the book of Psalms, certainly. It's all about Jesus. He's the blessed man. He's the rock of refuge. He's the shepherd of the sheep, the tower of shelter, the sweet honey of revelation, the thirst-quenching water. Got to Psalm 16, undoubtedly. He's the holy one who is not abandoned to the grave, but joyfully enters the presence of God. Psalm 110, he reigns in glory at God's right hand. Got to Song of Solomon, don't you think? I'm the bridegroom who pursues the bride, stopping at nothing until she's safely in my arms. Certainly he preached Isaiah, I'm God with you, I'm the suffering Savior, I'm the coming Prince of Priests who will reign eternally. Jeremiah, I'm the branch of righteousness who brings justice and equity, I'm the promised one who will write the new covenant on your hearts. In Ezekiel, he must have said, I'm the breath of life that gives life to the dry bones, I'm the faithful shepherd who goes looking for the lost sheep. In Daniel, he must have said, I'm the stone rejected by the kingdoms, yet smiting the false images and filling the earth with my glory. I'm the son of man who appears before the ancient of days and receives the eternal kingdom. I'm the fourth man who protects you through the fiery judgment. In Hosea, he might have said, I'm the faithful husband to the faithless wife. Or in Jonah, I'm the prophet who's thrown into the deep in order to appease the wrath of God, who spends three days and three nights in the deep before he emerges miraculously in order to bring salvation to a perverse people. He's In Micah, he might have said, I'm the one who treads your iniquities under my feet. I'm the one who cast all the sins into the depths of the sea. And Zechariah, he said, don't you see, I'm the one that you will look at, the one who is pierced, the one whom you mourn as his, the death for an only son. I'm the one who makes atonement for a single day. Friends, we could do this all day. All day. I mean, he's everywhere. He's the Ark of the Covenant. He's the mercy seat. He's the bread of life. He's the light of the golden lampstand. He's seen in the kingship of Josiah, the wisdom of Solomon, the prayers of Aaron, the miracles of Elijah. He's in the promised land. He's the city of refuge. He's the virgin son. He's Jacob's ladder by which we ascend to heaven. He's the burning bush. He's the goat caught in the thicket. He's the year of jubilee. He releases us from debt. He's the tree of life by which we eat and live forever. He's the Lord in his temple to whom the angels cry out day and night. Holy, holy, holy. That's the Lord Jesus. It's all about him. God wrote a book and it's about Jesus. What he has done and who he is on every page, his coming is prophesied, his life is prefigured, his sufferings are personified, his resurrection is promised, his return to glory is pledged. Have you read it? Are you reading it? It's about me, Christ says. God gave it to you so you would know me. The Lord says. Well, eventually they arrive home, don't they? Verse 28. So they drew near to the village to which they were going. He acted as if he were going farther. So here they come. Jesus is about to leave. That seems unacceptable to them, doesn't it? I think you could probably imagine why. Look in verse 29. They urged him strongly, stay with us, for it is towards evening. 
and the day is now spent. Right? Will you remain here, they say. Be with us. And you, you, I mean, we, that makes sense to us. If we were wild, don't you think you would have said, well, okay, do you want to stay for dinner? Right? And Jesus, Jesus agreed. They said maybe it's unsafe to travel at night and just stay with us. And Jesus says, okay, I'll stay with you. That seems obvious thing to ask, right? We'd do the same thing. And yet I tell you, I think we have this chance every day. I think you have the chance every day to say, Jesus, will you stay with me for a little bit? Can, can you and I, can we spend some time together? He reveals himself in his word. Don't you understand that? That's what he's showing us. That we have the same opportunity. That, Lord, I want to get to know you better. I, I, I want to hear more. I mean, do you? Or are you just rushing off into the next thing? They say, stay with us. And Jesus does. And they sit down for a meal here in verse 30. When he was at table with them, he took the bread and blessed it, and blessed and broke it and gave it to them. They, they're, they're down for a meal. I want you to note three things about this meal. First of all, notice whose house it is. It, this is uh, Cleopas' house, isn't it? It's not Jesus' house. But then who's, who's acting like the host? Did you get that? Jesus is. Right? The, the guest is hosting the meal. He, he takes the role of the head of the household. That would be very unusual, especially in this culture. It would even be unusual in our culture. But now Jesus sits at the head. They recognize something about him. They don't know who he is, but this man, whoever he is, he needs to be at the head of the table. Other thing to note is, you know, they're, they're breaking bread in their homes. You notice what they're doing? They're doing a couple things. They're breaking bread in their homes, and they're studying Scripture. You know what we call that? Community group. Yeah. Jesus rises from the dead. And he starts a community group, right? You open the Bible, right? Live in community. Let's break bread. Let's spend time together. Share life with one another. Study scripture. So be like Jesus. Join a community group. Right? Right? And then he, he hands them the bread. And, and, and look what happens there in verse 31. And their eyes were opened. And they recognized him. And he vanished from their sight. Right? So they, immediately they could see him. He's a resurrected Lord. Immediately God opens their eyes and they, they, they know who he is. It's Jesus. But just for a second. Because then he vanishes. He disappears. And now we'll consider that truth, God willing, more next week. But they, 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 they see the resurrected Lord and then somehow he, he, he vanishes. And, and imagine if you were like that. Okay, you're sitting at a table, you, this stranger here. All of a sudden you recognize, oh boy, that's Jesus. And then he's just gone. How, how do you respond to that? What do you say? Right? It, it, what just happened? I can't, he's alive, they might have said. Where did he go? That's not what they did. Look at verse 32. They said to each other, Did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road, while he opened to us the scripture? They're not captivated by his vanishing act. They're captivated by his Bible study, right? As he taught, they said, our hearts raced and a confusion and despair just melted like spring snow. Scripture came alive. It became unlocked. It was like our hearts were set on fire. Or Wesley might say, I felt my heart strangely warmed. I don't know if you ever experienced that warmth. You ever experience when, when Scripture is used not simply to give you a list of things to do or examples to follow, but instead Scripture is used to point you to a Savior who has done everything for you? Your heart ever start to race when you hear these things? You ever feel strangely warmed? It's an experience by God's grace that I have almost every week as I prepare to preach and linger over the Word of God. And every week, I, my friends, I discover something new or 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 I grow to appreciate something old in a new way, and my cold heart is warmed by God's word. This is why we consider the word every week. It's not our idea. We get this from the Lord Jesus. This is why we consider it at length, right? This is why you don't get off in the how-to sermons, right? Do this, do that, do this. I want to see Jesus. I'd rather see Jesus. 
than get five tips on how to handle debt, to be perfectly honest. I want to see my Lord and let him change my life. And, and he changed their life clearly as he opened the word for them. In fact, it's unusual. Don't you expect, I mean, if you didn't know this story, when they're walking on the road and they're saying, ah, oh, Jesus is dead, I wish you were alive, and all the rest, and Jesus is there, you expect him to say, hey, guys, it's me. Right? Don't you see I'm alive? But he doesn't do that. They're kept from seeing. Instead, he teaches them the word. Because faith in Christ is not to be based upon experience. It's not to be based on sight, but scripture. Faith comes by hearing. Not by seeing. And hearing the words of Christ. And so they are divinely kept from seeing who he is. Why? So that their understanding of the Messiah might rest on scripture. I like how one pastor put it. He said, I should have imagined that the risen Lord would be independent of the Bible. But no, he came up from the grave and hastened to the holy book. My friends, my prayer is that you would see him this week. That you would open your word and say, Lord, show me yourself. Draw near to me. Teach me just as you did with those disciples to Emmaus. Do you realize we have the exact same scripture that Jesus taught? It's identical. You have the same opportunity. And then, and then you would get with our brothers and sisters. You call, call someone over for coffee this week or breakfast or lunch and say, what are you reading? What's God showing you? Share with each other how the Lord is meeting with you and teaching you. And, and maybe you're here today and you're not a Christian. My, my prayer, my prayer all week has been that God would overtake some of you. That you would even feel him coming up upon you right now. That even today, that you would feel your heart strangely warmed and you think there's something to this. There's something to this man who died and rose from the dead. You understand that the Bible says that we don't, we're not accepted by God because of the life we live and the goodness we do. We're accepted by God simply because we trust in Christ who died to pay for our sin and rose from the grave. And Scripture says if you would bow your, your life to him in, in a repentant faith, you would surrender your life to him, trusting in him. You'll be saved. You'll be forgiven of sin. You'll be received into God's eternal life simply by faith. Certainly, I would love to be able to talk to you more about that this morning, or maybe if you came with someone, they could talk to you about that. This is the promise that God holds out, that, that he overtakes us and brings us to faith. And they, they saw him. They were brought to faith. They saw him through Scripture. But I don't, I don't know if you caught the timing of his revelation. I find this interesting. When was he revealed? Did you get that? When he broke the bread and he blessed it and he gave it to them. You see that there in verse uh, 31. Well, verse, excuse me, verse 30. When he was at table with them, he broke bread and blessed it. Uh, excuse me. He took the bread, blessed it, and broke it and gave it to them. And their eyes were opened and they recognized him. So when, when it says he took the bread, he broke it, blessed it, and gave it to them. Does that remind you of anything? Reminds me of the Lord's Supper. In fact, it's hard not to. Now, almost every, well, in fact, every commentary I read said this is not the Lord's Supper. There's no wine. Um, Of course, the the church hasn't even celebrated the Lord's Supper up to this point. They've had the Last Supper, which would have been on Thursday. This would be Sunday. These disciples most likely were not at the Last Supper. They would have no context to understand uh, the sacrament of communion. So it's, it's not the Lord's Supper. And yet, It's written in a way that I think is impossible not to think about the Lord's Supper. I think Luke did that on purpose. Jesus took the bread, then he blessed it, then he broke it, then he gave it to his disciples. In fact, look at how they describe the event down in verse 35. Then they told what had happened on the road and how he was known to them in the breaking of bread. He became known in the break. I don't know. Some speculate it's because they saw the nail scars on his hands as he broke it and he gave it to them. And then, then they were able to recognize who he was. I wonder when they relayed this story to the apostles, which they're doing there in verse 35, and they described it this way. Did the apostles kind of give this glance at them, like this knowing glance, thinking, we've heard this before. We just went through this, right? And, and I, I think what what Luke is telling us is he's, he's hinting at this meal that we're about to take. That the Lord's Supper is a way that we look at the Lord. It, the, the sacrament of the Lord's Supper is called the visible word. 
So scripture is how we hear what he's done, but the Lord's Supper is how we see with our eye and, and feel with our touch and even taste with our mouth what he's done. So as one has put it, the Lord's Supper presents to us, our, to our physical senses, senses what God declares to us in his word. So my hope is that the Lord would draw near to us through his word, certainly, but through this sacrament, through scripture and this communion meal that we might see Jesus. But before we take it, I just, two minutes, consider this third scene, the spiritual transformation that takes place in their life. We see it in verse 33. And they rose that same hour and returned to Jerusalem. And they found the 11 and those who were with them gathered together saying, the Lord has risen indeed and has appeared to Simon. Then they went and told told what had happened on the road and how he was known to them in the breaking of bread. You see, their, their sorrow was gone, isn't it? It's replaced with joy. They've seen the crucified Lord. And this joy propels them to share what they know, share what they've experienced. Their instinct in light of these truths is to tell someone else. And they go, according to Luke, that very hour. Never mind they just walked seven miles. Never mind that the day is over. Never mind it's dangerous in this culture to travel at nighttime. They're on fire. And so they have to tell what they've seen and heard. And they race the way they came. They go back and they find the apostles. And once they find them, before they can speak, the apostles bombard them with good news of their own. Verse 34 is not the words of the disciples of Emmaus. It's the word of the apostles. Look again. This is the apostle saying, the Lord has risen indeed and has appeared to Simon. So evidently, they too now believe that he's risen, right? And, and reports of the resurrection have been coming in all day. And we even have this mention, he's appeared to Peter. Now, interesting to note that this appearance to Peter is never recorded in Scripture. It's just mentioned here, and then Paul will mention it in, in, in passing in 1 Corinthians 15. So Jesus appeared to Peter, uh, they now believe, and the Emmaus disciples, they just add more fuel to the fire as they share their experience there in verse 35. Then they, that's the Emmaus disciples, told what had happened on the road. And they, they begin to share. See, they, they, they were overcome in despair and blindness. And Jesus chased them down and filled them with hope, opened their eyes, set their hearts ablaze. And their response is to testify with their mouth. Do you, do you testify to the Lord Jesus? We testify about other things, don't we? We, we speak about what brings us joy, don't we? In fact, just, in, until just recently, I was testifying quite a bit about college basketball. <laughs> we talk about what we love. Do you love Jesus enough to talk about him? We find someone to share with this week, testify to who he is and what he's done. Even now as we do this in the Lord's Supper, you understand that we testify in the Lord's Supper. The Bible says we proclaim his Lord's, the Lord's death until he comes. Let's do that with grateful hearts. Our Father, we're thankful for your word. And we're thankful now for this supper meal. We pray you would draw near to us in it. We pray that the Lord would come and reveal to him, to us, his nail-pierced hands. And this bread we eat and this blood, this cup we take. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. My brothers and sisters in the Lord Jesus Christ, the Holy Supper in which we are about to celebrate is a feast of remembrance, of communion, and of hope. We come in remembrance that our Lord Jesus Christ was sent of the Father into the world to assume our flesh and blood and to fulfill for us all obedience to the divine law, even to the bitter and shameful death on the cross. By his death, resurrection, and ascension, he has established a new and eternal covenant of grace and reconciliation that we might be accepted of God and never forsaken by him. We come to have communion with him the one who has promised to be with us always, even to the end of the world. And we come in hope, believing that this bread and this cup are a pledge and foretaste of the heavenly feast of which we shall partake when his kingdom has fully come, when unveiled faces we shall behold him and made like him in his glory. As we consider these truths, may you just take a moment to prepare your hearts for this supper meal.